Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter. In this episode, we feature the sixth talk in our series, Psychology and Democracy, the theme that we explored at the summer school, The Academy, which was organised by the Battle of Ideas charity. Our focus in this episode is Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. The novel was first published in Italy in 1928. Notoriously, it took until 1960 before it was published openly and in full here in the UK, and then only after it was the subject of a renowned obscenity trial against the publisher Penguin Books. The period just after the First World War, when the work was written, was a time when anticipation of future possibilities coexisted with feelings of dread over the world to come, when against a backdrop of fears over mass society, there was an intense interest in conflicting dynamics of modernisation and tradition, industrialization and nature of political contestation, and emerging psychological techniques that were then being employed as a means to try and understand and to shape modern society. Our lecturer is Ella Whelan, who is co-convener of Battle of Ideas Festival, a journalist, broadcaster and frequent commentator on TV and radio, and the writer and presenter of the recent Radio 4 programme, Girl Power R.I.P. I'm going to delve into the world of Lawrence and Rugby Hall and Tevishal and try and basically throw out a few questions, throw out a few ideas and questions about how we can relate this book and Lawrence's ideas to the broader theme of the academy. So he begin, you know, he begins the book by talking about this tragic age that we are all tragically inhabiting, um, and that age for le- the characters of Lady Chatterley's Lover is 1920. He's writing just after the First World War uh, and just before the real boom of modernism and the excitement of the 20s that's going to come back at the Daily Mail at the time in 1922 writes that this is really the first post-war year marked by a royal wedding. So 1920 that Connie uh, and Clifford are living in is this kind of filled with uh, possibility and dread and fear, and it's not quite recovered from um, the First World War yet. So they're still hanging in that shadow. Married couple, Connie and Clifford are tired, decrepit, and damaged relics, relics of an age that's about to breathe its last. Connie says, the cataclysm has happened. We are among the ruins. We've got to live no matter how many skies have fallen. And of course, the world around the Chatterleys is changing. It has changed, even in 1920, and they're struggling to keep, to keep up. Clifford, Lord Chatterley, who's returned paralyzed from the waist down from the war uh, to pursue what Lawrence calls uh, very favorably the bitch goddess of fame by means of really quite insinuated mediocre mediocre but popular stories and Clifford begins the novel as this archetype of the old immovable aristocrat refusing to engage with the the quite obvious level of destruction and reaped upon his world. And there's a great scene in which he sits in his mechanized chair which is constantly faltering and chugging along in the path through the grounds of his stately home, up on the hill of a woods, ex- exclaiming to Connie, this is the old England, the heart of it, and I intend to keep it intact. But of course, this is futile. Um, Connie and Clifford are already standing, looking at a patch of the woods that Clifford's father has ransacked for timber um, in the war. And Connie remarks that she can hear the hooters from Stack's Gate, the local colliery, and um, that Clifford can't, is he, he's sort of ignorant to, is refusing to listen to. He's being mocked. The old England he's pining after or pretending to protect really no longer exists. And Connie too is behind the time. She's not a flapper girl. 
but a ruddy kind of almost squat Scott. Um, and, you know, Lawrence loves the word ruddy almost as much as he loves the word buttocks, actually. And um, she's constantly being described as this kind of ruddy country girl. She says she's supposed to have a rather good figure, but she was now out of fashion, a little too female, not enough like an adolescent boy. And as their life at Rugby progresses with Clifford writing his stories and Connie engaging in, you know, what Lawrence calls the life of the mind with him, editing and transcribing his notes and finding intimacy in that side rather to supplement their obvious lack of sexual intimacy because of his uh, crippling. Connie's ruddy country girl charm begins to wilt. This life of the mind isn't sufficient. She becomes ill looking and thin. And again, Lawrence, always the charmer when it comes to women, uh, describes her breasts at one point as unripe, a little bitter, without meaning, hanging there whatever your woman wants to hear. So this is the horror of the modern world of mechanization and industrialization for Lawrence. We've completely lost touch with the body, the desire, the natural. And when taking a drive through the local area, Connie is on her own and she's looking out at Tevishal and remarks that the England of today is, she says, producing a new race of mankind, overconscious in the money and social and political side, on the spontaneous intuitive side, dead, but dead half corpses, all of them, it was all underworld. And for Lawrence, the advent of uh, technological development, the growing threat of the masses of political force, all these things are sort of very, not just frightening, but horrific. I mean, he's writing Lady Chatterley's Lover, 1928, thereabouts, you know, after the 1918 Representation of the People Act, after the Irish War of Independence, the Russian Revolution, there's things happening like mass engagement um, of the publics in politics is increasing, newspaper circulations growing rapidly. You know, the Daily Mail that I've already mentioned is reaching mass circulation just before the turn of the century. So democracy and politics and all this swimming mass of, uh, of new engagement in the hands of the masses is just no good thing for Lawrence. Um, in his eyes, it's only going to chew them up and spit them out and make them half dead, dead inside and inhabit this kind of underworld. And then of course, there's the First World Wars I've already mentioned. Um, in a 2006 introduction to the book, Doris Lessing claims that, you know, rather than being uh, about a, a love story, a bawdy love story, as Lady Chatterley's love is often known as, it is actually, in her eyes, the most powerful, uh, one of the most powerful anti-war novels ever written. Uh, and, I mean, maybe that's overstating it, but certainly the means of warfare at the time had upset Lawrence greatly. Uh, there's an article that he writes in August 1914 after watching uh, a battle uh, scene, and he says... What work was there to do? Only mechanically to adjust the guns and fire the shot. What was there to feel? Only the unnatural suspense and suppression. A machine which, for aught we knew, was killing our fellow men whilst we stood there, blind without knowledge or participation, subordinate to the cold machine. This was the glamour and glory of the war. Blue sky overhead and living green country all around. But we admit it, admit it all a part in some iron incense at will. Our flesh and blood, our soul and intelligence shed away and all that remained of us a cold metallic adherence to an iron machine. There was neither ferocity nor joy nor exultation nor exhilaration nor even quick fear, only a mechanical expressionless movement. He's often quite wordy, Lawrence. Uh, but you can see there that, that you know, what really has affected him is the disassociation involved in warfare that you're actually no longer sticking a a knife or a bayonet into anyone you're just managing machinery and that's the kind of horrific thing about it for him and in Lady Chatterley's Lover Lawrence's 
kind of constantly making these kind of political interventions via his characters. And um, when hearing that the, the miners at Tevashaw were talking again of a strike, Connie thinks to herself that it was not a manifestation of energy, it was the bruise of the war that had been in abeyance, slowly rising to the surface and creating the great ache of unrest and stupor of discontent. The bruise was deep, 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 the bruise of the false and human war. It would take many years for the living blood of the generations to dissolve the vast black clot of bruised blood deep inside their souls and bodies. And that basically the stoppage of lifeblood, you know, the, the clotting, the stagnation, of our inner vitality is this thing that has to be remedied for Lawrence. Um, it's, you know, the, basically the, the war and the kind of encroachment of um, machines and mechanization on life has, has caused us to clot up and stop working. And this is one of the ways in which this is most evident in the work is obviously around the impotence of Clifford and the notions of sex. This is where kind of sex comes in. Clifford and his friends, uh, are constantly talking uh, about the life of the mind and the idea that, you know, this, as they put it, sex is a sort of communication like speech. You know, there's nothing more to it, nothing so special about it. Tommy Jukes, who's this kind of quite interesting character of someone who's both very masculine and attractive to Connie, but also kind of completely cold and empty to her, says, I just simply can't vibrate in unison with a woman. There's no woman I can really want when I'm faced with her and I'm not going to start forcing myself to it. My God, no, I'll remain as I am and lead the mental life. It's the only honest thing to do. I can be quite happy talking to women, but it's all pure, hopelessly pure. Uh, and Connie's sitting in the corner as he's saying this, sewing and thinking to herself, you know, that she once did find it very exciting to live this life of the mind with men. You know, she says, um, it, was, it was fun. Instead of men kissing you and touching you with their bodies, they revealed their minds to you. It was great fun. But she's now come to the realization of, but what cold minds, you know, and she actually even says to Tommy Dukes at one point, there are some nice women, you know, some women and men do still like each other. And he, he rubbishes this. Um, as Lawrence writes, this turgid, unnatural, stultified world, would need new hope and Connie does that's Connie's word she says at the start of the book that it needs new hope um, and this comes in the form of Mellors for Connie who bursts into her world from the natural world the wood with a swift menace a sudden rush of threat and unlike Clifford of course uh, Mellors doesn't have a blood clot he can get it up uh, in fact Clifford is when Clifford is all in the mind Mellors is all in the pants even though most of the time he thinks without pants in the novel uh, the first time they're alone together Connie has this vision which hits her in the middle of her body in her womb you know think vitality life loins lots and lots of loins uh, in Lawrence uh, coming up with Mellors uh, coming upon Mellors having a wash around the back of his cottage in this very vulnerable state where she's um, watching him like an animal. She saw the clumsy breeches slipping down over the pure, delicate white loins, the bones showing a little, and the sense of aloneness of a creature purely alone overwhelmed her. Perfect, white, solitary nudity of a creature that lives alone and inwardly alone. And beyond that, a certain beauty of a pure creature, not the stuff of beauty, not even the body of beauty, but a lambency, the warm white flame of a single life revealing itself in contours that one might touch a body. And it's this final kind of epiphany a bot you know colon a body that represents the hope that lawrence has for this this tragic world vitality however quenched and frail it might be as connie notices that mellers is somewhere is present in him where it is absent in all other aspects of her life and of course because 
Lawrence is no lover of democracy or agency or anything that I might think is progressive about the shifting times that he's writing in. Um, for him, this life force is forced upon the two lovers by fate or will or, or something that's really other than their own. Uh, in a review of Lawrence's poetry, um, a book of Lawrence's poetry, Terry Eagleton is really rather disparaging of him, um, really trashes Lawrence basically and he says life for Lawrence is not the empirical existence of this kangaroo or that gamekeeper Mellors it is an enigmatic utterly mysterious force which speaks us for far more than we speak it it is at root quite indifferent to human beings and will have its own sweet way with them whatever their projects and desires Mellors the gamekeeper makes no attempt to resist his sexual feelings for Connie Chatterley in the fatalistic assurance that they must inexorably take their place when life grabs hold of you in Lawrence, often by the balls, you must simply look on wonderingly as though it were all happening to somebody else. And I mean, you know, I think there's a lot in that and it's, it's interesting but, or notable that you know, there is just no question of, of Mellor's resisting uh, his urges for, even though he actually really despises the world that Connie um, comes from and despises her at times. The flicker in his loins means that he's just, they're straight to it. Connie and Mellors even at times actually completely lose their minds altogether. They become, they, be, they are taken place by John Thomas and Lady Jane, which is their pet names for their forget-me-not strewn genitals, which occasionally are in conversation with each other. I mean, it, the book ends with Mellors' penis signing off to Connie's vagina when he says, John Thomas says goodnight to Lady Jane, a little droopingly, but with a hopeful heart. Uh, and in one of his rants about the upper classes and, and money and commerce and the dirty world, Mellors relates the problems with this world with the fact that the root of sanity is in the balls, he said. Uh, and the problem is that most men, like Clifford, for example, are now ballless. He says their spunk is gone dead. Motor cars and cinemas and airplanes suck that last bit out of them. I tell you, every generation breeds a more rabbity generation with India rubber tubing for guts and tin legs and tin faces, tin people. It's all a steady sort of Bolshevism just killing off the human thing and worshipping the mechanical thing. Money, money, money. All the modern lot get their real kick out of killing the old human feeling out of a man, making mincemeat out of the old Adam and the old Eve. There's, there's vitality and life coming back into it. They're all alike. The world is all alike. Kill off the human reality. A quid for every foreskin, two quid for each pair of balls. What is cunt but machine fucking? It's all alike. Pay him money to cut off the world's cock. Pay money, money, money to them. And that will take spunk out of mankind and leave them all little twiddling machines. And Connie sat there like, whoa, okay. And he's gone on this huge rant. Um, and of course, the, the antidote is to come back to nature. And um, she tells him that there's, after he said this, she says, you know, there is another truth. And she's saying this while she's gathering his balls in her hands. Um, and to bring him out of this despair, she decides to run out into the rain naked, um, you know, to, to completely reconnect in that kind of very visceral animalistic way. And when she's pulling off her clothes to do this, she takes his breath away, takes the life out of him. Um, and he notices her pointed, keen animal breasts, which tipped and stirred as she moved. So they're no longer bitter and meaningless, these breasts. They're now full of meaning and life and vitality. You can see why feminists like Kate Millett and others weren't so keen on Lawrence. You know, Connie is all haunches and posterior and animalistic. And of course, after she goes out in the rain, he takes her, which is the sort of the mastery of um, man in, in Lawrence. But for Mellors, her body and their sexual connection is the antidote to this modern life that he so abhors. He says, if, only I, if I only live 10 minutes, I'm not going to do a, a 
broad accent here, so forgive me. It says, if only I lived 10 minutes and stroked thy ass and got to know it, I should reckon I'd live one life. See you there, industrial system or not, here's one of my lifetimes. And yes, Connie's got a great backside. She herself um, remarks about her long sloping um, haunches, but it's this idea, this assertion of reclaiming the corporeal, you know, the Lawrence is all about getting back to the truth of, of sex and what it means and the hope of returning man and woman to some kind of creative state, breathing life back into the damaged soot covered England by means of this sort of very basic desire. Lawrence through Mellors is prophetic at times. In his last letter to Connie, um, Mellors says, there's a bad time coming, there's a bad time coming, boys, there's a bad time coming. If things go on as they are, there's nothing that lies in future but death and destruction for all these industrial masses. But the thing he believes in is, uh, but that, but you know, and obviously Lawrence is relating this to, because he's writing um, in 28, the the fear that's in the interwar period. You can, it's also reminiscent there of that repetition in Mellors from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, and this deep-seated fear of what's to come, you know, that section in it that says, my nerves are bad tonight, yes, bad, stay with me, speak to me, why do you never speak, speak, what are you thinking of, what thinking, what, I never know what you're thinking, think, and the fear is, as um, you know, Yeats wrote, that rough beast, it's our come round at last, slouching towards Bethlehem to be born, so what, what to do about this, um, and for Mellors, at the end of Lady Chatterley's Lover, uh, the thing that he believes in is, as he writes to Connie, you're being with me. A man has to fend and fettle for the best and then trust in something beyond himself. You can't ensure against the future except by really believing in the best bit of you and in the power beyond it. So I believe in the little flame between us, this Pentecostal flame that he talks about. In Going back to the 1914 article that Lawrence wrote, he ends it in, in total despair my God, why am I a man at all when this is all, this machinery piercing and tearing, it is so unnatural as to be unthinkable. But in Lady Chatterley's Lover, this, this Pentecostal flame, this holy power that sex and the body can give to man um, and woman, but mainly man, um, is taking over man's body in this higher power of fucking and desire and all this stuff that Lawrence talks about. And the aesthetic, this is the escape, this is the possibility of coming back to some kind of, and I think it is coming back a kind of, uh, there's a reactionary tone in all of it to some kind of state before the corruption of the world through everything we've talked about. So just to finish, I mean, questions for us to think about what does this uh, at times subjugation of the mind to the body or connection of the mind and the body um, say about Lawrence's belief in agency. I mean, they, as I said before, they both do lose themselves in sex. Mellors particularly is although feminists have talked about Connie losing her individuality I think actually a lot of the time Mellors is described as helpless the stream of consciousness changes direction um, turning downwards that's what it's written at one point you know he literally loses his brain to his balls um, Clifford predictably is on the other hand is kind of disparaging about the masses if you're talking about the, the kind of politics of the novel but I think Lawrence is also speaking through him when he scolds Connie at one point for being so naive and sympathetic in a kind of a way about the quality of life of the miners. Clifford says the masses were always the same and will always be the same. Nero's slaves were extremely little different from our colliers or the Ford motor car workmen. I mean Nero's mine slaves and his field slaves. It is the masses. They are unchangeable. An individual may emerge from the masses in the form of Mellors presumably but the emergence doesn't alter the mass. The masses are unalterable. It is the one of the most momentous facts of social science. Panem, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, panem et sir census, which is bread and circuses, 
Only today, education is one of the bad substitutes for a circus. What is wrong today is that we've made a profound hash of circuses part of the program and poisoned our masses with a little education. And I think, you know, that's what, that's possibly what Lawrence is saying has happened to Mellers, that he has been poisoned with this little bit of education, which he can't quite, he is basically making him miserable. And we can get into this. I haven't mentioned the obscenity trial, which took, uh, you know, took place in 1959, 1960, and cemented the popular idea of Lawrence as this kind of a bawdy, bawdy joke, really. Um, lots of the sexual imagery in the book reads like a kind of terrible Mills and Boone uh, book. And it's, you know, in places far more homoerotic with all the tales and haunches and asses and secret places than the kind of popular understanding of it gives it credit for. There's actually this fascinating article by well, it's it's an all right article by Peter Hitchens, but there's a really fascinating bit in it where he makes the point that um, Mervyn Griffith Jones, who was the prosecutor um, at the time of the obscenity trial, read out the whole segment of this, you know, pissing and chitting and touching secret places and getting rid of the shame. Um, between Connie and Mellors um, in his closing speech but and Hitchens writes, but because Lawrence's famous candor had deserted him because he did not use the fine old Anglo-Saxon word beginning with the letter B, buggery, um, which describes this act, a respectable English jury of the period probably had no idea what he was talking about. So <laughs> Hitchens is arguing that actually the kind of homoeroticism of it might have been lost at the time of the obscenity trial, which is funny because it was the one thing that was illegal. But what I think Lady Chatterley's lover is very useful in doing is revealing the inner turmoil of a shifting world. And Mellors in particular is stuck between these two worlds, a bit like Lawrence himself, you know, um, come from a mining background, thrown into the war and seen the world through the war, educated, obviously smarter than his peers. Um, but then coming back to the confines of Tevishal and not bare going back to the mines and so desert kind of hiding away in the woods as a gamekeeper and just being kind of bitterly buffeted between these two, these two worlds that are changing. And, you know, he's completely bitter and twisted about the ruling class and its decadent decrepitness. He talks about them having no balls, but also completely loath to join them or and join the filthy rat race he just wants to be left alone which is a feeling that Lawrence really shares himself being a son of a miner and a teacher and the kind of hero worship he had of his mother who was as he says in one of his poems superior was she to um, his father because of her relatively higher social class he too moved from humble beginnings to become a traveled author inhabiting that same kind of limbo land being exiled from Britain um, and during the war as being suspected as a spy never really being able to fully be accepted and that's that kind of torture that I think is there in Mellis as well and so this fraught tense prophetic moment of the interwar period as described in Lady Chastity's Lover though is given hope by them coming off together in the woods and I don't really mean that to sound flippant and um, partly what you know what Jacob was talking about in terms of this you know the search for vitality or something real and meaningful and true um, is you know is there and Connie and Mellors remain still partially protected from the dirt and grime and noise of the world um, which is slowly making its way towards them. You've been listening to Ella Whelan give the introductory talk to a book club discussion of D.H. Lawrence's novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover. The talk was part of the Academy 2020, which explored the theme Psychology and Democracy. We'll be featuring all the lectures from that event here on Ideas Matter podcast. To make sure you don't miss out, then please do subscribe through your usual podcast channels. 
To find out more about the work of the Battle of Ideas charity, then please head to our website, theboi.co.uk, where you'll be able to find out more details about the Academy, and also debating matters, our school's debating championships, and Living Freedom, our short residential school for under-25s who are keen to explore and debate historical and contemporary ideas related to freedom. Finally, if you appreciate our work promoting engagement with the world of ideas and creating practical forums for discussion and debate, and if you can manage a donation to support us, then we'd be most grateful. Do visit the website battleofideas.co.uk and click on the donate button. Thanks. Ideas Matter podcast will return with the next in our Psychology and Democracy series, a lecture by Professor James Woodhausen who will look at The Hidden Persuaders by American journalist and social critic Vance Packard. <laughs>